sermon outline. It says, sing a new song on it. I, I paused a little bit when they came down because I noticed that a couple of them had shoes on the wrong feet. And, uh, and I was just wondering if, you know, they would make it or fall or something. And so, great. We are in the book of Revelation. And I have been holding off this passage for Easter. And then, you know, didn't want to delay it because I felt it fit with today. So we are in Revelation chapter 14. We're going to read the first five verses. So you want to open your Bibles and that you can follow along or you can read along in the uh, sermon outline. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for giving us your word and making us your people. And as we look at this vision of triumph, as always, overwhelm us as you overwhelmed John. Remind us of what this is all about. Lord, help us to see that Jesus is the conquering king who is coming for his own. Do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, we love resurrection stories. The hero dies, and with him dies the dream. The people lose heart, and their hopes evaporate. Defeat looms. But then, by some miracle, the hero returns to life. Amazed, overjoyed, the people take heart. And with renewed courage, they face their foes. Victory results. So many stories and films tap into this now classic plot. Take, for example, the, the heroes of three popular fantasies. In The Lord of the Rings, the wizard Gandalf the Grey returns from the netherworld as Gandalf the White, the powerful uh, wielder of the light. In The Matrix, flatlined Neo is brought back by Trinity's love and faith in him as the one who will free humanity from its digital slavery. And in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, when Harry sacrifices himself to save his friends, an avenue opens for him to resume his life and defeat his nemesis, Lord Voldemort. And as readers and as moviegoers, we get caught up in these stories. We feel dismay at the hero's uh, seeming death, and despair in the aftermath, but eventually we rejoice at the surprising return and get a lot of satisfaction from the final triumph. 
these types of stories are truly mythic. They tap into the myth of the hero who journeys into deadly trials and returns transformed, or they draw on the ancient story of a dying and rising God. And because they're so representative, such stories work for us over and over and over again. They seem to stir up something uh, deep in our consciousness. The mythologist uh, Joseph Campbell concluded that all stories are part of the one story. Once humans lived in paradise, we were banished from paradise. We're seeking to re-enter paradise. And uh, authors like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien uh, wrote fantasy literature as an ex expression of this desire to enter the world that we long for. And so you can see how interest in uh, uh, books and movies like Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, Narnia, can all be used as a means of conveying Christian truth. But all of these are tales of the imagination. What about the real world? Do we experience anything like these tumultuous reversals in our own lives? We do hear the occasional story where after a uh, long period of diminishing hope, someone is rescued from a, a, a mine or a building that's collapsed or freed from a kidnapper. We saw uh, a number of those moving stories after the earthquake in Haiti. And even as we meet this morning, a dramatic rescue attempt is being carried out at a flooded mine in China. But those are people who are survivors. And as dramatic and moving as those stories are, they're not actually resurrection stories. But it's a whole different story when we get to Jesus. Because his isn't an, isn't an account of a death-like disappearance, followed by a resurrection-like reappearance. In this story, the death is real and the body is buried. And real, too, is the man who returns fully alive in both body and mind. This is not just a myth. The Jesus story takes place in real time and space. C.S. Lewis wrote often about the idea of myth, in the sense of myth being an epic tale, not merely something that wasn't true, as we often misuse the word today. And as C.S. Lewis uh, famously explained, as myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is a myth, an epic tale, which is also a fact. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. And if you think about it, the followers of Jesus watched their leader die. They were disheartened, discouraged, confused, afraid, grief-stricken, drained of hope. Despite Jesus' statements, numerous statements, about rising after three days, they had no expectation of his immediate resurrection. So when the women uh, reported that the tomb was empty and the word of his appearance reached them and finally they were able to touch their risen friend themselves, joy eclipsed sorrow and belief replaced disbelief. Today is Easter Sunday. 
Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And today, in the middle of the book of Revelation, we're going to get a small glimpse of what that looks like from the perspective of heaven. Before we get too far, I know there's a number of folks uh, here today who haven't been going through Revelation with us for the last seven months. Uh, so let me give you a little background as to where we are in the story right now. We have just finished going through Revelation chapters 11 through 13, which gives us a vision for what happens when the seventh and final trumpet is blown. And to be honest, it's a fairly disturbing vision. The Apostle John sees a cosmic conflict, a holy war, as we learned last Sunday. And the dragon appears, who we're told is Satan himself. And he seeks to destroy the child of the woman. And the, the child is Christ. And God prevents this from happening, so the dragon turns his anger on the woman, who symbolizes Israel as the people of God, as well as being the mother of the Messiah. But God shields her, provides a place of safety for her. And so we read at the end of Revelation chapter 12, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So when Satan can't get the child, Jesus can't get the mother, turns his attention to wage war on the church. And chapter 13 opens with a beast emerging from the sea. This beast is the one the dragon will use to wage war on the saints. The beast is taken from Daniel's vision of four beasts in Daniel 7, except now they're rolled into one. And he's allowed to attack the saints for 42 months, which is a symbolic period of time between the first and second coming of Christ. And since the dragon, now identified as Satan, will wage war through violence and deception, it seems that this beast, the beast from the sea, symbolizes the persecution of the saints by the great powers of the earth. And it is the job of the first beast to persecute the church, primarily through violent means, primarily by using the power of the state against believers. And if the beast from the sea attacks the church with violence, the second half of chapter 13, we get a second beast, a beast from the earth, and he attacks the church with deception and seduction. And violence and deception are the two primary means that Satan uses to persecute the church. And it appears from Revelation 12 and 13 that it creates an incredibly difficult situation for the church. Believers are being persecuted both economically and physically. Many are being martyred. Even more are being led astray by false teachers, falling into immorality and idolatry. And to be honest, there are a couple of really depressing chapters. And it looks like all is lost. It's, a, it's the great conflict, and we're losing. But then, praise God, we turn to chapter 14. And the first thing we notice is the person, place, and people of redemption. Three blanks and one line. How mean can you get? The person, place, and people of redemption. 
in the middle of describing the dragon's schemes against God and against the church, the people of God, John takes us to see Christ. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And here in this vision, John sees the Lamb who in chapter 5 was found worthy to open the seals of the scroll of history, standing victorious with his followers. Mount Zion is the highest place in what would become the city of Jerusalem, the place where the Temple of Solomon was built. And it came to be seen as an image of the kingdom of God, the city of God, eventually of heaven itself. The sacred description comes to us numerous times throughout the Old Testament. Just a few of them here. Uh, picture deliverance and victory. Uh, Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The prophet Obadiah. In Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. And in Micah, chapter 4, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation, and the Lord, the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, from this time forth and forevermore. But most importantly, Mount Zion is pictured for us as the seat of Christ's sovereign messianic reign. We go back to Psalm 2. I told you last week, Psalm 2 is the most quoted uh, passage in the Bible in the Old Testament, the most quoted passage in the New Testament. And we read in Psalm 2, As for me, I have set my king on Zion my holy hill. And now we get a picture of that. The New Testament uh, picks up that language, applies it to the seat of God's sovereign rule through Christ over the church and over all creation. And it's obvious that the writers are referring to Mount Zion spiritually as the heavenly seat of divine rule. Just as God has revealed his rule in the earthly Jerusalem in the temple, even so he establishes the eternal and sovereign rule of the Messiah in the New Jerusalem. We read that in Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. John intends us, uh, for us to see the strength and the power and the stability of Christ standing on Mount Zion. The battle's been going on. The church is being persecuted. It's being deceived. People are falling into immorality and idolatry. People are being persecuted and martyred. And it's a terrible battle. And then John, look up. There's the Lamb. Look up, see Mount Zion. 
And there stands the Lamb with the army of God. I think this is one of the most hopeful verses in the Scriptures. In our darkest day, when everything is against us, then I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And at that moment, John knows we've won. It's over. There's a lot of battle still going on. There's a lot of stuff to be fought. But look, it's the Lamb. And he wins. John tells us that he's coming to exercise his sovereign rule even while the dragon and his servants oppose him. And you get this image of him standing there looking down over uh, the battlefield of the whole earth. And he doesn't cower and he's never afraid and he is ever present as the strength of believers. And it says the seal of God has been placed on the foreheads of the faithful, which we read about in chapter 7 and 9. The seal that distinguishes them from the people of the world. And it took the form of the names of the Father and the Son. We saw that promised all the way back in chapter 3 to the church in Philadelphia. Back in chapter 3 it said, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. God will protect those who bear his name. Now this name stands in contrast to the seal that the beast required to be placed on his followers in the immediately preceding uh, verses. Once again, as throughout the Bible, there are two and only two communities in this world. One either belongs to the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God. You're going to wear one seal or the other. And then we're given a couple times here another one of Revelation's numeric symbols, 144,000. We first encountered that back in chapter 7. There it was made up of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But there, as here, it represents the full number of the redeemed. These are all the people whom the, land, the Lamb purchased, redeemed from every tongue and language and people and nation to make them a kingdom and priests to serve God. In chapter 7 and 9, the 144,000 were those sealed against the woes that lay ahead. And to see that same number now in heaven is the equivalent of saying that not one of the Lord's people was lost. These saints are those against whom the two beasts did their worst Numbered among them are the martyrs who suffered death for their loyalty to Jesus, but the beast could not overcome them. God protected them from ultimate harm as just as he promised that he would. Put it another way, the elective God always numbers 144,000. It is a numeric symbol for God's people. The number of saints in heaven on earth is always 144,000, no matter how many millions are added to that number. It is the number representing the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and is that as if looking up from the death and destruction of this world and seeing the scene of the Lamb and his followers isn't already overwhelming our senses, the sound of victory follows right behind the sight of victory. And we hear the song of redemption. Look at verse 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This mighty sound uh, likened to the largest sounds known in the ancient world, uh, the waterfall or waves pounding the shore and thunder, which are both used a number of times elsewhere in Revelation. You get the image of a, a, a great orchestra and a great chorus performing a great anthem. And it's a song of triumph. Perhaps it's the same song as in Revelation 5, where it says, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it can be sung only by those who experience both the trial of faith and the deliverance by the power of God. And the song that John extolled, the song that John heard extolled the wonder of what Christ has done, something that others in the world don't know and can't even learn. Even the angels do not fully understand. The purpose of this secrecy is not to keep God's glory veiled, but to symbolize the astonishing truth that sinful people, redeemed by the Lamb, are qualified by that experience of salvation to exalt Him in a way that even the purest and highest angel cannot. But there's something more in this short vision of the Lamb and his people on Mount Zion, reveling in the glorious sounds of that triumphant anthem of praise to God. What John draws our attention to is the moral quality of the 144,000 of the saints who make up that mighty chorus. They're not the same people they used to be. They're conquerors. They have overcome. And these people reveal to us the transformation of redemption. The transformation of redemption. Look at verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. The army of the Lord is there because on earth they were pure, they willingly followed the Lord, and they were honest. Heaven, in other words, is theirs as a reward for their righteousness. This is a recurring theme in Revelation. It's taught in many other places in the Bible. Jesus himself said in John 5, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, there can be no thought of a person having earned the life of heaven by his good works. We're reminded here that these people lived righteous lives are the very ones whom Christ redeemed. That is, he bought their freedom from sin and death with his own life given up on the cross. These righteous people were purchased 
and offered to God. They are who and what they are because of what the Lamb, Jesus Christ, did for them and made of them. That's always clear in the Bible. But if we can speak of heaven as a reward, and the Bible does speak of it that way, it's a reward of God's grace. God, in Augustine's famous phrase, is crowning his own gifts. When he rewards the saints, who by his transforming grace and daily help have proved themselves faithful to him. Still, it is to their, uh, their faithfulness and its reward that John draws our attention here, just as he did in all of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. There, too, it was to the faithful, the obedient, the persevering, who were promised the blessings of the heavenly city. You can't skip over that. It's repeated emphasis here in the book of Revelation. And this great book is a summons. It's a summons to faithfulness in the teeth of opposition and persecution. It's a summons to the faithful enduring of the trials that will come to those who worship the true God in the devil's world. It's a summons to a determined unwillingness to break faith with Jesus, no matter what the cost. And all through the book, promises of future glory are made to those and only to those who remain steadfast in their loyalty to Jesus. And here we have the central message of Revelation. It is the faithful, the steadfast, the obedient who will enter the everlasting joy of the Lord. I think it's both interesting and important that standing for that life of faithfulness uh, to Christ, we're given three distinct pieces of Christian righteousness. Sexual purity, submission, and honesty. It's a striking demonstration of the Bible's timelessness uh, that then as well as now, these uh, parts of righteousness should be chosen to stand for the whole. And then as now, these specific behaviors dramatically demonstrate the difference that loyalty to Jesus makes in a person's life. Today, just as in the later uh, first century, sexual purity, submission to following Christ in one's life, honesty, makes for a bright line separating the kingdom of God from the kingdom of this world. And perhaps that's why the redeemed here are described by their moral attributes. We're told they're sexually pure. The text literally says they're virgins. And this has, as you might expect, prompted a great deal of debate. Is this early evidence that celibacy is regarded as a higher life than that of marriage? The problem with that interpretation is that in the context, the alternative is not that married Christians live a good but not quite as good a life as unmarried Christians, but actually that sexual relationships, even in marriage, are defiling and that only virginity is a pure way of life, a conclusion the Bible categorically denies. What is more, if the 144,000 are the entire elective God, as I have argued, then no true Christian was ever really married, which would be very disappointing, at least for Peter, John, Joanne, and I. <laughs> Not to mention Becca and Sarah. For those who don't know, they're both getting married soon. 
It's better to take John as simply saying that Christians live lives of purity. Virginity is used elsewhere in the Bible as a figure of speech for purity in general, just as adultery is used as a symbol of spiritual infidelity. Later in this same chapter, John will refer to the sinful world's idolatry as adultery. And Israel, her married and unmarried citizens alike, was to be a virgin before the Lord, pure. And when she lapsed into idolatry, she's described as having played the harlot. This figure of speech is carried over into the New Testament. Paul says his goal is to prevent his converts at the church in Corinth, both married and unmarried, as a pure virgin to Christ, says that 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you, plural, the church in Corinth, to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So summing all that up, the purity of the 144,000 is not only sexual purity, but the refusal to pollute themselves with the idolatrous worship of the beast. That's the comparison. From chapter 13, those people worship the beast. He's saying, that's, a, that's impure, that's adultery. These are the people who haven't done that because they've been redeemed. Additionally, John says, these Christians are those who follow the Lord Jesus in everything. That is, they live lives of uncomplaining discipleship. I wish I could use that phrase about myself. The discipleship may be the uncomplaining, probably never. Seventy times in the Gospels, the nature of discipleship is simply described as following Jesus. Furthermore, we see their lives are offered in sacrifice to God. They did not lie, and they were blameless. Now, that doesn't mean they were sinless. In the idiom of the Bible, it means to be a faithful Christian whose life reflects the holiness of God, who lives in the reality both of the forgiveness that God has granted to him or her through Jesus Christ and the reality of the righteous life to which he or she has been called as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now the general gist of this paragraph is clear enough. It's another anticipation of the heavenly glory of the saints, which in this context is meant to give them courage to steal them, to bear the trials that those faithful to Jesus will inevitably suffer in Satan's world. We've read such anticipations of heavenly reward already on a number of occasions. Each of the seven letters ends with such an anticipation. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, or a white stone with a new name on it, or authority over the nations, or the right to sit with me on my throne. Over and over again, to him who overcomes, and there's a promise for the end. When you finish, this is what's waiting for you. And I think Christians in the West today need to face the implication of all of this. We're being told that the real reward for faithfulness to Christ is not going to be obtained in this world. There are many blessings that come to Christians in this world, to be sure. It's far better to be a Christian in this life for lots of different reasons. But loyalty to Christ can also make life very difficult at the same time. It's possible that the faithful Christian life in this world will be short and hard. 
and there'll be relatively little worldly happiness. There are plenty of Christians in our world for which this is the case. Following Christ might mean hardship and loss and early death. And in light of this reality, the reason to remain faithful cannot be because God will make your life here easy and happy. He may not. The reason to remain faithful to Jesus is because if you do, God's will brings you at last to the heavenly country, the new Jerusalem, so you can stand with him on Mount Zion. And many Christians in today's world, I'm afraid, find that motivation somewhat unimpressive. They want their reward here and now. And there's a great many preachers out there who are telling them, you don't have to wait. God will give you what you want right now. Follow Christ and have a happy marriage, healthy children, a new house, a nice car, and a long life of good health. And that may be, but the book of Revelation provides very little encouragement to expect that. What I'm saying is if you get your best life now, you might not have it for eternity. The quintessential Christian in Revelation is the martyr who loses his life and therefore loses his marriage, his children, his home because he refuses to deny the lordship of Christ. Perpetual martyrdom is Revelation's theory of the Christian life. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and you need to get ready to die. That's the wonderful plan. Haven't seen that booklet going around. And so over and over again in this book, our attention is thrown forward to the more distant future. And we're reminded that any amount of suffering here in this life is not worthy to be compared to the joy that will be ours when we're at last in heaven with the Lord. And given that Christian faith may well bring more difficulty uh, than ease, more hardship than pleasure, this future reward is the only honest and certain motivation for the Christian life. I mean, are, are people waking up this morning as part of the persecuted church in China rejoicing that they're going to share in a big family dinner with a spiral-cut ham and grandma's green bean casserole? And then they'll get to hunt for Easter eggs? I don't think so. But they are rejoicing. And they're rejoicing because while in the midst of the great battle, they're able to see the triumphant return of the king a lamb standing though slain, and standing with him are all the saints who've gone before. And they can say with the Apostle John, Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's what Easter's really about. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And with that resurrection, he has overcome sin and death and evil and Satan forever and ever. The resurrection is God's ultimate sign that there is a king and he reigns on high and he's coming back for you and me. And we need to live in light of that truth. Have you ever been disoriented? You weren't quite sure where you were or what's going on? Perhaps you took a nap and you woke up and you thought it was the next day, but it wasn't. 
That's happened to a few of you. And things just feel out of sorts. You know, the other day I was working at my desk and I just kind of zoned out. You know, sort of got lost in that mental fog. Fairly common occurrence for me, sad to say. And when I snapped to, I looked at my watch and it said five o'clock. And I panicked thinking, how can it be five o'clock? I haven't even had lunch yet. I can't have been out of it that long. And then I realized my watch was upside down. I'd put it on my wrist backwards that morning. And when I turned it around, much to my relief, it was only 11 o'clock in the morning. When you get disoriented, you just don't have a true sense of what's going on around you. It's a terrible feeling. You know, it reminds me of those scenes in Lord of the Rings concerning the disorientation of King Theoden. How many of you have seen Lord of the Rings? Most of you, good. Those of you that haven't, you need to see them, all three. If you remember the story, Theoden has been steadily deceived by his traitorous advisor, Wormtongue. It's a bad name. And what we have in this poetic description of Tolkien is this raw material of deception and disorientation. And this deception is so powerful, it's almost like a chemical assault on the brain. So that by imperceptible inches, a man or a woman is robbed of a clear mind and a vigorous imagination, but all the time is being assured that everything's fine, all is well. But if you remember the scene, then Gandalf forces his way into the castle, brushes aside Wormtongue, the demonic advisor, confronts the king. And Theoden, in his disorientation, attempts to fight Gandalf's words. But then the wizard, previously known as Gandalf the Grey, throws off his cloak, revealing himself now to be Gandalf the White, who has overcome certain death. And Gandalf forces back the evil worm tongue, throws open Theoden's castle windows, the fresh air rushes in, the old king has his vision cleared. And through the magic of cinema, you see the king's countenance change from this pallid gray to the rugged color that belongs to the king of the horsemen. It's been a shocking and painful experience, but the result is thrilling. That's our life. That's what this vision here at the end of this chapter from Revelation 11 to 14, that's what it's all about. We have to demonstrate endurance and exercise faith in the midst of the worst of circumstances. And we're promised that this experience will be shocking and painful. But then the Lamb and his army will crest Mount Zion as the conquering king, returning to take back his rightful domain. And it will be thrilling. This is a vision of the saints who came through the great tribulation to stand in triumph before the Lord and the angels of God. And in Revelation, as in the rest of the Bible, the present can only truly be evaluated according to the future and the ultimate destiny of people. The difficulties that face Christians in a world that's enthralled with the devil in which the great beasts are at work to discredit and undermine their faith is answered by a glimpse of the glory that awaits the faithful follower of Jesus Christ. 
And the glimpse that we get here is of the bright morning of eternity when the Lamb and his followers stand on Mount Zion with the anthem of redemption everywhere, resounding like the roar of a mighty waterfall. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Remember that. Remember that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for us in our place, paying the penalty for our sin. Thank you that on the third day he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death and evil and Satan. Thank you that he's ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the throne of God the Father Almighty. And thank you that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Thank you that one day we will stand with him on the crest of Mount Zion. Use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you and obey you and follow you no matter what. We ask all these things in the name of your risen son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.